um, I want to jump right on into this today. And uh, Emmanuel has been kind of our theme. And we know that because the Bible tells us that that word, actually that name, it means God with us. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. And I want to read this story. Somebody said, you know, like every Christmas, you know, it's kind of like repetitive. You, you read the same text. You, I don't know about you, but I never get tired of all this, huh? I never, ever get tired of it. And all my life, as I go through these passages and as I, as I absorb this story, it just gets deeper and deeper and deeper. And at the same time, I understand more of it, and I apply more of it, and it affects my life, yet it becomes even more mysterious, because that's how awesome our God is. He blows our mind. So read this, and we'll go back through it, and we're going to talk about God with us. This whole thing that we celebrate all the time, uh, and, and every day, but especially this time of year, uh, Christmas, about God's greatest gift. Now, next week is Christmas Eve. And we are going to have our regular morning service. We're going to have a special time of worship and just, and just really thinking about the greatest part of that gift uh, for just a little while. And then probably everybody will be going uh, to be with family and so forth. So read with me today, Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, this familiar story. But don't let it become so familiar that you don't soak this in. Ready? Verse 18, it says, Now the birth of Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. And he quotes from Isaiah. We'll look at this verse later from Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife. But he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. And we do not know the exact date of his birth. Uh, guys... I, I don't want to mess anything up for you here, but it probably was not December 25th. It probably wasn't in this time of year at all. In fact, the, the instance of the shepherds being in the field with their flock is usually during the time of lambing, which would probably, you know, we think maybe be more toward the spring. Uh, and I know that if you study this, there are some really weird backgrounds of some of the traditions we have that come through this. Part of what happened there was uh, many of us come, our ancestors come from parts of the world, especially Western Europe. Uh, and long ago, those folks were, 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 were just as heathen as they could be, worshipped all kinds of stuff. One of the things that they did is this time of year, you're coming to the 
what we call the winter solstice, and all of a sudden in the northern hemisphere, the sun, you know, the daylight hours get longer, and it's the emergence of the sun, and they worship that. They had stuff, you know, that they did. When a lot of those, but a lot of this is, you know, just like celebrations and customs, all right? When a lot of those people came to know Christ, uh, they kind of Christianized some of those things, so. Uh, and, and then there are things that we have that kind of have roots there, but we kind of look at them differently now. And even Martin Luther is, you know, credited in, to some degree with uh, inventing like the Christmas tree and the shape of it representing the Trinity and the lights of it. And there, you know, there's all kinds of different things like that. Well, you can do whatever you want to there, but we, we, don't, we don't worship a time of year. But, but, but it is a time that Christians began to celebrate the first coming of Christ into the world, uh, the advent, that means he came down to us. We began to celebrate that. It was a festive time of the year. So you do realize in the New Testament, not like the Old Testament, and Paul talks about this in Philippians 2, that in the Old, in the Old Testament there were all these different dates and, and festivals and Sabbaths and new moons and all the things that they, according to the law, the rules they had to keep and the things they had to do. In the New Testament, there are no holy days. That's what holiday uh, means is holy day. There's no one day that's any holier than any other day in the New Testament. You want to know why? Every day is holy. We, we, and, and every day is like a Sabbath as we, the writer of Hebrews alludes to this, uh, where we rest in Christ. There's a Sabbath rest every day. Uh, that, that every day we're keeping part of that as we're resting in the finished work of Christ instead of working our own way thinking we can into heaven. So there's all of this. So every day is special, but there's nothing wrong with emphasizing this this time of year. And, and it's a great opportunity since nearly the whole world does this, and especially in our nation, it draws attention. And I think we're wise to make the most of that. I think we're wise as we have an excuse to get together as families and have this festive spirit, right? And we, we enjoy being together and we're happy and we're loving each other and uh, we're, we're giving gifts. And, you know, especially those relatives that you don't get to see very often and, and you just love seeing them. But, but if they lived here, they would drive you nuts. But you're glad they don't. But they, at least they come visit, right? Right? Okay. And um, so and we have that. But don't miss that opportunity to emphasize what it's about, about Jesus. Don't, don't forget, use this as an opportunity, especially with the kids. Especially if you have your, your kids or grandkids around to read this story. Make sure they know. Make sure it's emphasized. Make sure they begin to get it. It's so important. Such a powerful tradition. But we don't know the exact date of Christ's birth. It's been said, but his birth split time in the way that we date it. Amen. He never wrote a book, but more books have been written about him than any other person who has ever lived. As far as we know, Jesus never painted a picture, never composed any poetry, any music, yet no one's life and teaching has been the subject of a greater output of songs and poetry, pictures, films, and art. Jesus never raised an army, yet millions of people have laid down their lives for Jesus Christ. As you study the Bible, you'll find that his travels here on earth were very limited Yet his influence is worldwide. He never spoke to more than probably a, maybe a few thousand people at one time. Yet today, over 30% of the world's population at least profess his name. Jesus had no formal education. Yet think of the thousands of schools, colleges, and seminaries that are founded in his name. Jesus never, as, we, as far as we know, owned any property. In order to teach, he had to borrow a boat. When he came into Jerusalem, he had to borrow a donkey. 
when he went to pay taxes, he had to borrow a coin. And even when he was buried, he was buried in a borrowed tomb. Yet this building belongs to him. When Jesus was born, he was unknown except in a very, very small area of the world. But the famous Encyclopedia Britannica uh, allocates almost 30,000 words in the article about Jesus. Now, I don't know who first put this together, but I've always thought that was powerful. Because it's Jesus that makes Christianity different than everything else. It's not just one among the world's religions. It is unique. You have to say, whether you believe or not, you have to say it is unique. There's nothing like it. All the other religions have to do with things that you do and rules that you keep and merits that you hope to attain to get to the next level, to get to heaven or whatever it may be. But this is the only one that starts out by saying that you admit you can't do it. That you fall before God realizing that you are bankrupt and unable. This is the only one where God himself came and did it for you. That's what Christmas is about. That's what resurrection is about. And that Jesus did the work that we couldn't do. That even if I could be perfect, which I got news for you, I'm not going to be. I like to be, but don't get your hopes up. There's a lot of failure goes on here. Even if I could be perfect from here on out, I've already blown it. I'm already a sinner. That is already with a perfect God and a perfect heaven, I, I have no place there. I'm already contaminated by sin. Something had to be done about that. This is the only place where we have God coming down and being the sacrifice himself. See, the Messiah had been promised, had been prophesied. And that's the other thing. He didn't just arrive. All these hundreds of years it was documented Hundreds of prophecies. If I took time to go through them all, we'd be here far longer than you want to be here, okay? Uh, we'll look at a couple. But it was, he was prophet. And so, so when he arrived, we would know who he is. It happened. That God came down. And, and as we look at this story, it's so powerful because it's, it's Christ that makes Christianity different than all the religions of the world. I heard Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse say years ago, from, he's from a, several generations back, that that song... Rock of Ages, that says, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. All of the other religions of the world, he said, are, in fact, something in my hand I bring. Something that I do. Something that I try to achieve. But this is where Christianity is different. It is nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to your cross I cling. That's it. It's all about him. You know... You take the leaders out of all of the other world religions and keep their teachings and their precepts, and you pretty much don't change anything. But I want to tell you, you can't. Even if you kept his teachings and all of that, some people are like, I want to follow Jesus as a great teacher, but you can't take Jesus out, even if you kept the teachings and still have anything. Because it's not just about his teachings. It is all built on him. It's not just learning lessons about Jesus. It is Jesus living inside you. It's not just stuff you believe about him. It is Christ himself, the very presence of God, coming into your life. See, when you get saved, you don't just get the Christian religion. You get Jesus. You get him. 
Just like when I got married, I didn't just get married. I mean, when I got married, I didn't just become a husband. When I got married, I didn't just get a wife. I got Clarissa Del Murray. <laughs> Boy, did I ever. Anyway, it's very specific. And so when you get saved, you get Christ. See, so it is about a relationship more than about religion. About, and, and, and now it's not about the rules I keep or those things that I do. It's about what he did and my faith in him and my trust in him and the love of God that fills me up, the love that for God so loved the world that he gave. That is what motivates me to want to order my life the way he's designed. I want to please him. I want to honor him. I want to worship him. He not only is what my life's about, he is my life. He is the author of life. He's the one that has given us eternal life. There's nothing greater than that. And so the motivation is so much better when we're motivated by love than by like duty or guilt. This is what it's all about. And you know what? That manger, which was probably a a hewn out of rock. Uh, It wasn't a pretty wooden manger. Uh, I started to put a picture up there, but we had the privilege and blessing of, of, of being in Bethlehem back in June and, um, and going to some of the spots where they, they kept animals. It may be the very spot. It may just be one like at a cave where they would shoo animals into at night. That's probably where it was that they were staying, where animals stayed, which is in a lot of little caves around there. Didn't see hardly anything in that country made out of wood, not buildings, not anything hardly. Not much wood around there. So it was rock, probably, that trough. And so I say, like a lot of people have said it, the manger in Bethlehem really was the cradle that rocked the world, right? So let's look into this because it says his birth was the birth of Jesus Christ took place like this. And, 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 and he refers to him as Jesus, and that's what they were to call him. And Luke gives us more of the story. Jesus means Savior. It's the, it's the Hebrew, it's Yeshua. It means Savior. And Christ is not his last name here. He's not Jesus Christ. Like Jesus' first name, Christ is last name. Uh, that's his title. They're all titles. It tells who he is. Jesus, he's Savior. Christ, he's the Messiah. Comes from the Greek word for Messiah. He is the, the, the Messiah, the Messiah. He's the one who has come to be the anointed one. Now, we had kings and princes who were anointed by leaders like Samuel and others to to rule and to lead. But this is God's anointed. This is the one God himself anointed. And they looked for him. And that's what that whole song we were singing was about, how that the nation looked for him. And it's sad that some of the most learned people became so caught up in themselves and their own religion that when he showed up, the very God that they professed to worship, they missed him. They didn't want him messing up their systems. We can be the same way if we don't watch it. So he's the Messiah, the one who is to come, this deliverer who is to come. To save means deliver. And so this king who is going to be a deliverer is on his way. It was prophesied. They knew one was going to come, but all that they could focus on was him saving them from oppressive other nations and things like that. Or they didn't realize that he's Yeshua, he's Jesus. He came to save his people from their sins. And that, he says, they will call him Emmanuel. That's what, I just called him that, by the way. And it's true. So that's what they're going to do. And that's what I just did. 
which means God with us. That's telling more about who he is. So uh, the thing I look at here is just how unlikely all this happened. You're thinking the king is coming, this anointed one, this deliverer that was first promised in the Garden of Eden. That one was going to come, the seed of the woman, and crush the enemy's head. And then through Abraham, that there's one coming through you. You're going to be a blessing to all nations, to all people. This was reaffirmed to Isaac and to Jacob and, and all the way down. We would expect this king to arrive in some royal manner. We would expect all of the dignitaries to be there. We would expect it to be so different than what it was. And so that's one of my first uh, takeaways here is the unlikely circumstances in which he entered the world is much different than we would have expected. We know that as, as we read in, in Luke that how that the angel appeared to Mary and, and, and it seemed like overwhelming to her, uh, but yet she was a young girl. Now she was betrothed, it says to Joseph. Now betrothed is, is a legal term there. Uh, like It's different than our being engaged, but it's similar. The betrothal was a legal deal. I mean, uh, and usually, uh, you know, the people, people were married when they were like, I mean, usually a young girl would be betrothed when she was 14 or 15. So Mary finds out that this is going to happen to her, and she just is obedient. Lord, whatever it is, may it be. It happened to me like you said. But you can imagine young Joseph who is betrothed to her. I mean, there's a legal arrangement has been made. Dowries are paid. I mean, there's money involved even. And so to break off a betrothal, you have to have legal action. And so when Joseph finds out they're betrothed and she's pregnant, it's a problem, a horrible problem. And if you know, you know that under the law in those days, uh, adultery was punishable by death, right? And he didn't want her to be, and they didn't really always do that, but she would be disgraced because this is like, um, so what has happened here? And, and she's saying, uh, I haven't been with anybody. Uh, you'll never believe this. An angel came and, and, and yeah. You see, you see what I'm saying? You, you think this is a, oh, such a beautiful story. This was scandalous. This was, this was tough. Can you imagine that? I don't know how much time went on here that Joseph had to wrestle with this. But I know this enough time that he decided he loved her so much. He believed in her. This made no sense to him. He did not want to shame her publicly. By uh, He decided to secretly divorce her. The, the literal word is to put her away. To dissolve the, the agreement and try to do it as quietly as he could because he wanted to protect her. Now here's a guy that as far as any human understanding can go has really been himself shamed and embarrassed by something. It makes no sense. But it, he, he just can't get his, his arms around it He's trying to trust. He's struggling. He's considering. And, and isn't it good to know that when we reach the end of our rope, God always gives us something extra. He always breaks through. And that's exactly what he did for Joseph. An angel appeared to him and told him, it's exactly right what she said. And, 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 and that, that, that child was conceived of the Holy Spirit. And he explains, this is going to be Mashiach. This is going to be the Messiah. This is the one. And he is going to be Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. His name will be Emmanuel. It is God with us. And, and this is what he's going to do. He's going to save his people from their sins. And Joseph woke up. He did as the angel of the Lord commanded. He took his wife. And it says, but he didn't know her. I mean, he knew who she was. But that is a phrase that means intimacy. It also means marriage. 
uh, but he, he, he didn't know her, uh, it says, until she had given birth to a son. But it means that they didn't have physical intimacy until she had a son. And they called his name Jesus. It just says until. Now, you may have come from a tradition where they teach the perpetual virginity of Mary. And that's what people have taught. But I just want you to know that that's not what the Bible teaches. So if you believe that, you, you, you'll get it from somewhere else. You, you don't get it from here because it says just until he was born. And it seems the natural understanding was is that after that, Mary and Joseph were a normal married couple. And they did come together. And they did have other children. In fact, they show up later on. So that's been the normal understanding. So if you're kind of confused by that, I'm just giving you what the Bible teaches. And, 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 and you may have gotten the other teaching. It comes from somewhere else. But I just want to stick with what this teaches. So this is the situation that, that they were dealing with. And then Luke tells us because of this census. that and, and Luke is very detailed in time about who was ruling and when it was and how it went about. God even used a corrupt government. Say, well, boy, our world's too messed up for God to work. If God can use the Roman government to achieve his ends, I guarantee you he can use us today. And so even in this, ta- this census was all about collecting taxes. And the Romans were very wise about how they did things. They knew that these people were divided into tribes. They were very tribal. And so they used that as a way to gather them, and they kept meticulous records of their genealogies. Very important that they did that because no one ever questioned Jesus' claim to be a descendant of David. The Pharisees never questioned it. No one. They had proof. They had documentation. And so the Romans used this. And they had them go to their ancestral homes according to their family line and their tribe. Well, it just so happens we find out Joseph. And then later Luke shows us a different genealogy that since Joseph wasn't really his dad, it's through Mary and her dad that they were both descended from David. So they had to go to David's ancestral home, which is Bethlehem. And they had to make this journey. So God even used that. And so this is about an 85-mile trip through not that great of, of, of territory. And it had been a rough trip. And, and we always have the picture of him walking along, leading her, riding on a donkey. It doesn't say that she rode a donkey, but hopefully she did. You know, uh, So this is a long, difficult trip. And when they get there, we find that when Jesus is born, when it happens, that they were, were in a place where animals were, like a stable, probably a cave, because there was no room for them in the guest house up there. And you would think, well, why was that? Uh, and we don't know. It could be that it took them longer to get there and everything was filled up. But, you know, there's family there, right? All these people are related. There's got to be close family there. Surely someone would see this poor pregnant gal. That, that, but, but see, things hadn't happened right. There was a cloud over this whole situation. There was doubt. I mean, there was gossip. There was who knows what. Because things are, you know, um, they, they, they're adding things up here. And it doesn't add up to them. Maybe they were being shunned. It doesn't tell us that. But you can't help but wonder, had they been shunned? And they were like, that's good enough for you guys. But Joseph is sticking with her. And Joseph is there. And it's them. And they find shelter in probably a cave. And then Jesus was born. And, and they called his name Jesus. Now, they went to Bethlehem. Of course, that was documented hundreds of years before. The prophet Micah in the Old Testament. 
told us about it, Micah 5, 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from old, from ancient days. So there's something strange about this ruler that, that is not just that he's been prophesied from ancient times. He himself is from forever. And so when Jesus was born and Herod begins to hear about it later on and the magi, the wise men come and uh, they're seeking, he gets the scribes together and they say, where's, a, where's this deliverer? Where's this Messiah going to be born? And, and they, they, come, they find this out of the scrolls and well, it's, it's, it was no doubt it was Bethlehem. But, but it's strange because God picks instead of a royal couple uh, uh, that they would know about or instead of a high class couple, he finds a couple of simple poor folk from Nazareth which is way up in Galilee. But the Messiah is to be born in Bethlehem. God even uses the Roman ruler to arrange it so that I don't think Joseph and Mary were reading the scroll said, hey, you know what, we've got to get ourselves to Bethlehem before this baby's born to fulfill scripture. It wasn't like that. It was ordered for them to be there by people who didn't even believe in the true God. So this is an amazing way that God brought this about. And so the little town of Bethlehem, uh, and I don't know if it's a silent night or not. It may have been, you know, it may be Mary and Joseph are up there, and if they can hear any of these songs wafting up there, it's like, silent night, oh brother. It was chaotic, and it was hectic, and it was anything but silent. I don't know. But we think about that, that, that this one was born, that the Messiah came, the Deliverer came, and as it turns out, it's none other than God himself. But the rest of the world slept. And there was no big celebration. There was nothing. God slipped into this world in a way we would not have expected for the Messiah to be born. And he is Emmanuel. Now, that's the big thing we see is not only was he fully human, he was fully God. His divine nature. And I want to talk about that for a second. Because in the simplest terms, the incarnation. So we call it that. Remember I talked about that last week? That means coming in flesh. Carne means flesh, okay? Incarnation means he came in the flesh. So the incarnation of Christ means this one who always existed came in to humanity. This is, when we're talking about that, we're talking about the union of God and humanity in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, follow me on this. This is something you, you need to understand. Now, in theological terms, here's a, a phrase you need to hear. It's called the hypostatic union. Hypostasis meaning person. is talking about his person. He has uh, a dual nature, fully divine, fully human. This union took place at the moment of conception when both natures melded, inseparable yet unmixed. In this mysterious union, there was, get this, and this is in your notes if you pulled up notes from our Facebook page or your YouVersion app. Uh, these are in your notes. Make some to go with it. Look up these verses. They're very powerful. Uh, that undiminished deity was veiled in untainted humanity. Jesus, co-equal, co-eternal, co-existent with the Father. That Jesus was both fully God and at the same time fully human. When the wise men came, they not only came to see a real human baby lying in a manger, they bowed down and they worshipped him. The Father would have never allowed this if what I said wasn't true because the only one that can receive worship is God. 
And that's just what they did. And we see that in chapter 2, verse 1, as they come. No other birth was prophesied as much as this. Over in Isaiah, hundreds and hundreds of years before, he'd been prophesied this way. Here's what God said through Isaiah. He said in Isaiah 9, 6, For, unto, or for to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And it goes on. I mean, he is, he is Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. He's Mighty God. Uh, Everlasting Father. I said, well, I thought he was the son, not the father. The word there literally means the father of eternity. He's eternal. Prince of Peace. And uh, Did you notice how he said that? You see, prophesied already, you see... You see the first and second coming, both, because the government right now is not upon his shoulders. But you also see the dual nature of Christ. The child is born. He's going to be really human. And to be human, he had to be born. The child was born. But the son wasn't born because the son existed from all eternity past. Are you following me? The son was given. Do you see that? The child was born. The son was given. And right there, way back there, Isaiah was speaking to us about how that he would be divine, but he would lower himself to take upon the likeness of humanity. Paul, later on, Paul who had been a Jew, and Paul who did not believe in Christ at first, came to understand this whole thing. And he explained it this way in Philippians 2, 6 and 7. He said, though he was God, talking about Jesus. And I'm using the New Living here because it really captures the, the essence of, of how to put this into the way we speak today, okay? And, and instead of uh, how we spoke 500 years ago. It's a very difficult Greek to translate, but it says, though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Now, the word clinging there means to grasp. Uh, and, and it's with the idea of to cling or to grasp selfishly. Like someone who is a thief or a robber would do. That's why some translations translate it robbery. But this is the essence of what it, the words mean. That he didn't look at equality with God as something to cling to, to hold on to selfishly. But instead, he gave up his divine privileges. Not his position, but his privileges. And he took the humble position of being born as a human being. He humbled himself. He lowered himself. To do this. And one of the best places. And I don't know if you notice through this year how often this verse pops up. It's one of like the central verses of the gospel. But this also illustrates it. Because in John 3.16 Jesus said for God so loved the world that he what? He gave his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Isaiah said years before the son was given. He says God gave his son. Why? Because he loves us so much. And he was Emmanuel. Not just a prince, not just the anointed one. He is God with us. We saw last week in John chapter 1 that he is called the Word. In the beginning, John said, was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. And the word translated from the Greek as word in English is the word logos. You remember that. And it's different than a, a, a word that just means like the verbal sound coming out of your mouth, rhema. But this is logos. And Logos isn't just the, the word itself. It's the idea, the thought expressed through the word. And so when he's telling us that, we saw last week that, that what is a word, an expression of an idea or a thought, Jesus, we find out, is the exact expression or representation of God. 
to us. That's why when Jesus was here, he was arguing. Listen to this. This is, this is amazing. He's arguing with the Pharisees at one time. And, and they were talking about Abraham being their father. And he said, Abraham saw my day and he rejoiced. He said, you're not even 50 years old. You don't know Abraham. Here's what Jesus said in John 8, 58. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Well, the people standing there in the Pharisees, they understood what Jesus was implying there because they took up stones to kill him. But they couldn't do it. Jesus was saying, before Abraham was, I am. Not only that I existed, but the way he said this is not the way normally in the Greek grammar you would construct this. He says it in a way that's emphatic. And, and, and that I am on the end would sound very much like the very words God told Moses at the burning bush when he said, what is your name? And he said, I am. That's how what Jesus is saying. He's not only saying, I was alive, I am the I am. That's from his own mouth. Later on, Paul's writing to Titus, and he, he says this in Titus 2.13. So I just want to give you some verses to document this, and they're in your notes, but you want to, you want to meditate on these later. Titus 2.13, waiting for our blessed hope. The hope that we have, according to Paul, isn't just a concept or an idea out there that we're hanging on to. It's a person. Our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Did you notice the grammar here? He's the, the, our great God and Savior. And the way that's constructed, great God and Savior are pointing to the same person, Jesus Christ. He's not only our Savior, He's God. That's what Paul is saying in that verse. And even later on when Paul was journeying back to Jerusalem and he stopped by to visit the pastors and the leaders of the church at Ephesus, they met with him. And he said in verse 28 of Acts 20, he said, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he, who? God, obtained with his own blood. Do you hear that? God obtained the church with his blood. God can't bleed, but when God became fully human, he could bleed and pay the price for human beings. That's what Paul's saying, right? So powerful. So how's this going to happen? How's God going to do this? How's God, who's eternal, going to enter into humanity and not be stained by sin? There was only one way. It was a unique birth. So think about it. Think about the possibilities that would have been at the Father's disposal uh, for this, that he, how could God become human and remain uninfected by humanity's sinfulness? Because a sinful Savior couldn't be a Savior, could he? If he's messed up with the same stuff we are. So all the possibilities. First of all, how about this? He could have a, the best of all, find the very best and most, most righteous of human beings. A, a good human father and a good human mother. Well, we know Mary and Joseph were both very devout and very good people, but they weren't perfect. Because later on, Paul makes sure we know that everybody who's descended from Adam has sinned. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, in Adam we all die. Because we've all got sin. Wages of sin is death. In Adam. Adam brought sin in, and we all are descended from Adam. So we're all tainted by a sinful nature. And you see it. You can deny it all you want to, but you see it. I mean, those precious babies we have... You see that sinful, selfish nature. See, that's part of the essence of it. When I'm talking about all these different big sins, it all comes back down to the core sin of pride and selfishness. We want to do things our way. We don't want God to be God over us. We don't want our parents telling us what to do. We want things to be mine. 
mind. You know what I'm saying? It's that selfishness is the root of so many of the sins that we commit. I want something for me. I want this for me. I want to be running me. And we don't bow to God. But that, that, that spark of that, that, that corruption is already in us from the earliest moments. And so um, that's not going to work because had he been from the very best, so we can just go like, eh, that won't work <laughs> because the very best of humanity is already plagued by sin. All have sinned. Um, in fact, in Psalm 51, 5, David said, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, in sin, and in sin my mother conceived me. So Jesus would have been all human, unavoidably sinful, no deity. He'd have been helpless to be our Savior. All right? Okay, scratch that. How about this one then? Oh, then a supernatural being, kind of like an angel or something, with no father or mother and not tainted by humanity and their sin. How about that one? How about he come and do this? Well, guess what? Eh, that won't work either. Because he would have been all deity and no humanity. He could not have been a savior because a savior must be the perfect representative of both God and lost humanity. And this wouldn't cover that. In fact, the writer of Hebrews is trying to explain this. Hebrews 2.14, he says, Since therefore the children, that's all of us, share in flesh and blood, that is, we're human. He himself, he's talking about Christ, that's the he. He, Christ, likewise partook of the same things. What same things? Flesh and blood. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. So he had to, if he was going to destroy the power of death, the power of sin, he had to be flesh and blood. Wages of sin is death. If God himself is going to pay the price for our sins, wages of sin is death. God could want to do that all he wants, but God can't die. But when God came as fully God, but yet fully human... Now he could die for us. He goes on in verse 17 and he says it this way. Therefore, he, Jesus, had to be made like his brothers. That's us, human. In every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. The word propitiation means an atonement or a covering. There's no way he could cover. He's got to be the perfect representation of humanity and deity in order to be. So that's what he's trying to make sure that we know. So what's left on the table? How about this? How about this? He could choose to select a virgin, a woman, a woman who is a virgin who through a miraculous conception could give birth to a child. If that happened, he would not be descended from Adam. There's no male seed. And Mary is not, according to the Bible, the mother of God. She was the vehicle for the humanity of Christ to enter into this world. That's what the Bible teaches. And with this option, he would be, not be the seed of Adam. Of man, but would be the seed of the woman. And that's exactly what God announced back in Genesis 3.15. After Adam and Eve sinned and before they were kicked out of the garden, he talked about the devil, the enemy, the serpent. And he said that to the woman, he said this to the woman, that your seed will crush his head. He'll bruise his heel, but your seed will crush the enemy's head. Now, that doesn't make biological sense. And since God's the one who created all this, surely he knows, right? 
The male has the seed. The female has the egg. But right there, it says the offspring, the seed of the woman, not of the man. So all the way back in Genesis 3, 15, was prophesied how God would do this, the virgin birth. That's why this is crucial. I say, well, that's no big deal. Yes, it is a big deal. Without it, you don't have the dual nature of Christ, fully human, fully God. And that's why he tells us this, that he would be both. Now, the verse that he's quoted here in Matthew goes all the way back to Isaiah. So let's go back to Isaiah. And we go back to Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. And there is that verse where he says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name what? Emmanuel. Now, there's some events that happened in Isaiah's life that were, um, that, that were kind of one of the first fulfillments of this. But the primary fulfillment of it was going to be this. And the, and, 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 the Lord makes sure that we know, the angel makes sure that we know that, that Christ's birth is a fulfillment of this. This isn't something Matthew thought up. This is something that the angel gave, that this is the fulfillment, that this one would be born, and he will be the seed of the woman, born of a virgin. This was how God did So you see the practicality of it all? The virgin birth of Christ has such far-reaching ramifications of practical significance. Because Christ, Christianity is Christ. And if Christ is only a man, then Christianity is just another human religion. A man-made religion can't save any of us, folks. Man-made religion falls apart. Why? 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 Because, first of all, a natural Savior provides no supernatural help. I need supernatural help. I need supernatural forgiveness and peace. Secondly, a strictly human Savior offers no divine hope. Life would just be an empty dream if Christ were only human. And third, a sinful Savior is really no Savior at all. He'd have to die for his own sins. He couldn't die for our sins. That's why it makes even logical sense that it had to be that the way that it was. The virgin birth. Of Christ, like his, just like his pre-existence we talked about last week, is more closely connected to our lives than maybe we realize. Christmas is more closely connected to your spiritual life than maybe you realize. The truth of it guarantees spiritual help in our natural helplessness. Divine hope in our mortal hopelessness. The mysterious mingling of this, of uncompromised deity, fully God, plus complete humanity, equals a Savior who was qualified to meet our deepest needs, Jesus. We understand that this is all theologically correct and true. This is what was prophesied. But if we're honest, we realize this is more than we can fathom. This is what it means to have God with us. And he went to all of this trouble just to save your sinful self, to save you. God went to all this trouble because he knew you would be born. He knew all of the ridiculous, wicked, and stupid things you would do and say. And he still thought you were worth dying for. Because he knows it all. He's eternal. Someone wrote this once to the artist. He is altogether lovely. 
To the architect, he's the chief cornerstone. To the athlete, he's the goal and the prize. To the baker, he's the living bread. To the banker, he's the hidden treasure. To the biologist, he is the life. To the builder, he's the sure foundation. To the doctor, he's the great physician. To the educator, he's the great teacher. To the farmer, he's the lord of the harvest. To the florist, he's the beautiful rose of Sharon. To the geologist, he is the rock of ages. To the lawyer, he's the advocate. To the publisher, he is good time of great joy to the philosopher he is the wisdom of God to the preacher he's the word of God to the sculptor he is the living stone to the statesman he is the desire of all nations to the theologian he is the author and the finisher of our faith to the sinner he is the lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world to the Christian. He is Savior. He is Redeemer. He is Messiah. He is Lord. He is God. Let us bow before Him. If you do not know this one, if you have not received this gift, which is what all gift is about, that God gave. He gave Him for you. Not just so that you could get to where you pay more attention at keeping rules. His rules. But so that your heart and your life would be flooded by forgiveness. And by redemption. And by love. And by healing. And His very presence enter in you to enable you to give that love back. To love those who don't love you. To love your enemies even. He gives you that ability if you submit to Him. Things you could never do. Heal hurts that could never heal any other way. And the icing on the cake give you eternal life and a place He's preparing with you, for you with Him forever. Let's pray.